0: We're beginning this morning, a sermon series based in the Gospel of John. And having read the opening verses, what is referred to as the prologue of the Gospel, the first 18 verses we read during the Advent and Christmas season, we begin this morning at verse 19. The reading of Scripture is found on page 886 of your Black Pew Bible. And I invite you to open your Bible or one of the Pew Bibles. For the reading of God's Word. And let us ask the Lord, whose Spirit breathed out this Word and preserved it for us in Holy Scripture, to breathe upon us afresh, to open our ears, to open our minds, and to open our hearts, to receive, understand, and respond to His Word in true faith. Let us pray. Almighty and ever gracious God, we give you thanks that in your great love and rich mercy you have come to us to redeem us from our sins and to set us free from the dominion of the devil, that we might live as children of your kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name that through him you will now pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, O Lord. And by the power of your Spirit, speak your word to us in Holy Scripture. And grant that we will receive it in faith and respond as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. whose name we pray, Amen. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, let us hear the Word of God. And this is the testimony of John, that is, John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one, You do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now unto Him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by His blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and power, dominion, forever and ever amen John the Baptist burst onto the scene out of the pages of the old testament so to speak a wild man of a prophet unafraid of the religious and political power structures of his day he spoke with the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord now he preached a politically incorrect message an offensive message for it threatened the self-righteous security in which most of the Jewish leaders of that day found in their religious traditions and their ancestral identity but it was also a dangerous message because it announced the coming of the kingdom of God the coming of the kingdom the coming of the king into a world in which, at that time, the Roman Empire tolerated no rivals. So to this world of spiritual darkness and political fear, John the Baptist came fearlessly, bearing witness to the light of grace and truth. He was, in fact, though we find him on in the pages of the New Testament, John the Baptist was really, in fact, the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so he stands as it were, so to speak, with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament. But the people of his day did not really know who he was or what he was why he was doing what he was doing. And the the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, the officials set out this contingency to find out who he was, what he was doing, and why. Who are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? They wanted to know about John the Baptist. Their focus, their attention was centered on John the Baptist. But John made it perfectly clear that the attention and the focus was not to be directed upon him. He turned all of the attention he pointed to, he bore witness to, the one who was to come, Jesus. And so he answered them, no, I'm not the Christ. Are you the prophet? Now, that question is a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. It goes back to the days of Moses, in which Moses said to the Israelites, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. This actually is a prophecy of the Messiah. So again, it is a prophecy of Christ because this prophet would be the second Moses, the mediator of the new covenant. But John the Baptist, again, denied that he was the Christ, denied that he was the prophet promised by Moses, Then they said, well, are you Elijah? Because the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, says, the Lord says in Malachi 4, 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The prophet Elijah was to be the forerunner, the precursor of the coming of the Messiah. But John the Baptist, interestingly enough, says, no, I'm not Elijah, And that might surprise us. That might surprise us because, in fact, he was the forerunner of the Christ. And Jesus himself, as you may know later on, Jesus himself referred to John the Baptist saying, if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. Now, if John the Baptist knew that he was, in fact, the prophet, coming before the Messiah, if Jesus were eventually going to identify John the Baptist as the promised Elijah, well, why didn't John the Baptist claim that title for himself? What's going on here? Well, I, I think that the answer lies in John the Baptist's determination to deflect all attention away from himself. As John on another occasion said about Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. John understood that he was simply a pointer, a witness. He didn't want attention called on himself. He did not want to claim that he was Elijah back from the dead, literally. I mean, just think of the furor that would have arisen over that claim, which would have gotten in the way of his bearing witness to Jesus. And I think it can also be said that John the Baptist knew that he did not have the authority to make that claim about himself, for himself. You know, it would have been wrong for John the Baptist to have been calling all the attention to himself by proclaiming himself to be Elijah. Only God had the authority to declare who that was. Jesus, yes, had the authority to say that John the Baptist was, in fact, the promised Elijah, not in the sense of any kind of reincarnation, not in the sense that Elijah had come back from the dead, but that John the Baptist fulfilled that role, fulfilled that prophecy of Malachi by the role that he filled. So for all of these reasons, John the Baptist was really making the point, look, you've got it all wrong. It is not about me It is about the one who is coming after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. A saying which meant that in relationship to Jesus, John was lower than a slave. Completely insignificant. And note what John says here in this passage. After me comes a man who ranks before me or above me. Because he was before me. What is John the Baptist saying there? Jesus was not before John chronologically. You you know the story of the Annunciations. John the Baptist was born before Jesus. He's not referring to chronological age. He's not referring to public ministry. John's public ministry began before Jesus. What is John saying? After me comes a man who ranks before me, that is preeminent to me, because he was before me. John the Baptist is here testifying to, announcing the eternally divine nature of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. By Him all things were made. And without Him not anything was made that was made. Jesus was from all eternity before John. That's divine revelation. John was ordained by God as a prophet. The last prophet to bear witness to the Messiah. John the Baptist experienced divine revelation. When John baptized Jesus the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John saw the Spirit fall in the form of the dove at that baptism God had already told him. The one on whom you see the Spirit descend, this is my beloved Son. And so John burst on the scene declaring Jesus. And in this passage, you see, he's introducing Jesus to the world. He's introducing Jesus to you and me. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb. Now this is one of the great themes of the whole Gospel, the entire Gospel of John, which we'll be looking through the weeks to come. Behold the Lamb of God. And when John says that, he is, in effect, he is summarizing the Old Testament as he introduces the one who fulfills all of the promises of God given to his people in the Old Testament. John is saying, this is the one for whom you have been waiting. This is the Lamb of God, foreshadowed, prophesied, pointed to by all of the prophets. Here he is. And that declaration at verse 29, you see, shifts all of the attention away from John the Baptist, focuses it on Jesus. Now, let's think about the theme of Jesus the Lamb of God. Ever since Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, God has shown His people that reconciliation, peace with Him, fellowship with Him, comes only by the shed blood of a sacrifice. You may remember that immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, they became aware of their Nakedness, they became conscious of guilt and shame and vulnerability and helplessness and hopelessness. All of that symbolized by the awareness of their nakedness, their nothingness, if you will. Their emptiness before God. But in Genesis chapter 3, before God sent them out of the Garden of Eden, God in his mercy, says the scripture, made garments of skins and clothed them. Now that is the first instance of death in the Bible. To make a garment of skin, it's not a garment of cotton, it's not a garment of wool, it's a garment of an animal's skin. Make a garment of an animal's skin, what do you have to do to that animal? You can answer that question. You've got to kill it. It's the first instance of death in the Bible. It's the first sacrifice offered in the Bible. Who offered it? You can answer that question. God. There it is. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 3. The offering up of a sacrifice, death, the shedding of blood, For what purpose? To cover the nakedness, the shame, the guilt of Adam and Eve. That's the Gospel in Genesis 3. That's Jesus in Genesis 3. That is the reason that right there in the Garden of Eden, right there at the beginning of the story of redemption in the Bible, the principle is revealed. It's expressed in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. But you see, that sacrifice in the garden, the sacrifice that God offered up, was only symbolic. It was pointing to the true sacrifice which would be made when the true Lamb of God would be offered up. The Lamb of God born of woman whose blood would wash away the sin of the world for all who believe in Him, and whose righteousness would close the naked guilt of sinners who trust in Him. So there in the Garden of Eden, God gave the promise, of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Another Old Testament foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ as the Lamb of God, the Savior of His people, of course, comes when the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt on the night of the Passover. Each head of household took a lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot, and sacrificed it and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentils of the houses where they were having feasted upon the lamb. Right? They sacrificed the lamb, cooked it, ate the lamb, the flesh of the lamb, and put his blood on the doorposts of their houses which stood as the sign and symbol of the covenant between God and His believing people that through the blood of the Lamb they would be saved for the angel of death would pass over them. They would be saved from the curse. They would be delivered from The dominion of Pharaoh brought up out of the house of slavery into new life in the promised land as God's redeemed people. Well, all of that is a foreshadowing and a sign of the redemption, the salvation, the liberation that comes through Jesus Christ the true Lamb of God, by whose blood shed on the cross the wrath of God against our sins is satisfied, and by His mercy we receive redemption from the guilt of our sins, redemption from the curse of death, liberation from the dominion of the devil, We are transformed, no longer slaves of Satan, but children of God. All of that in the Exodus account of the Passover of the Israelites, you see, points forward to and is fulfilled by Jesus, the true Passover lamb. And these principles apply, of course, to all of the old covenant Old Testament sacrificial system, which was instituted through Moses, which you read about in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, and the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was but a sign, a, 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 a system which pointed to the salvation that would come through the true Lamb of God. And let us hear what the prophet Isaiah said about that from chapter 53 of Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, We considered Him stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The sacrificial slaughter of atonement. The peace making sacrifice. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. It all comes together there in Isaiah 53. The Lamb, the true Lamb of God, you see, is really a man. A man who suffered and bore the sins of his people. A man stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God in your place, in my place. A man pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, whose punishment would bring us peace, whose wounds would make us whole. For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so you see, John the Baptist introduced Jesus. He announced, proclaimed Him as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes and promises for redemption. When John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was saying, there He is. The one in whom complete salvation is found the clothing for naked guilt, the freedom from slavery to sin, redemption from the curse, cleansing from spiritual pollution, and the ultimate victory of eternal life over death. There He is. Behold the One in whom all the promises are fulfilled. The one to whom the law and the prophets bear witness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if I take something away from you, I take what, it is, what is yours, I take it as though it is mine, I claim it for myself, remove it from your possession. I do with it as I please. I might take away your book. I might take away your purse. I might take your food. I might take your car. All of which would be very bad things to do. But here's my point. It is in my power, I suppose, theoretically speaking, to take what is yours and claim it as mine. As wrong as that is, but just bear with the illustration. Because here's the point. There is one thing I cannot take from you. I cannot take away your sin. And you cannot take away my sin. neither you nor I on our own and by our own power and devices can get rid of the sin. It, it ju- we just can't wash it off. Only one man can do that. Only one man has the right to do it. Only one man has the authority to do it. Only one man has the power to do it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can take away the sin of the world. And by that phrase, the world, John means the sin of people from all nations, people from anywhere, people from everywhere, people of all time, even People who lived before Jesus chronologically in history. Who took away Adam's sin? Jesus. Who took away King David's sin? Jesus. Who takes away your sin? He's able to take away the sin of the world then He is able to take away your sin. This is the precious promise of salvation for all those who believe in Him. To believe is to embrace Him, honor Him, receive Him, for who He is, trust in Him, look to Him, look to Him alone for salvation. And so once again, for all of us, and it, it matters not what our journey in life is today, it matters not whether we, are, whether, whether, whether we have been believers in Jesus for as long as we can remember, that is the case for many of us gathered here today or whether we're rather new to the faith or coming back to the faith or on the fringes of the faith. What matters is that day by day we are placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've not made that as a conscious decision, I, I would plead with you by the grace of the Holy Spirit to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and to find in Him as I must find every day of my life, my comfort, and my assurance of salvation in Him alone who takes away my sin. Let us all, one and and all, behold Him, welcome Him, embrace Him, give thanks to Him, place our faith in Him, cast our sins upon Him and follow Him. And let us never forget that we have been redeemed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect. In Him is our perfect salvation. Worthy is the Lamb. Glory to the Lamb. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the great promises of the Gospel of Jesus Christ in whom we have life, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and the hope of glory. We pray, O Lord, that You would apply the truth of Your Word with the power of Your Spirit to our hearts, to our minds, to our inner being. That in union with Christ through faith, we may now live as those who have been completely, fully pardoned and set free to live new lives to the glory and praise of Your name. Through Christ our Savior, amen.